high atop of Florida's peninsula, you are listening to And I'm your host, Alpha Mike. Today, we'll be listening to episode 101, The Cuban Mafia. We have a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unfold here. There are a lot of information that snitches have given us so we can relay in today's show. Why are we talking about the Cuban Mafia? Because it is such a mystery. There are so many people, including Cubans, that have never heard of this up until today. We are going to sit here and discuss part two of episode number 101, Cuban Mafia. And before we have our sit down and we discuss how everything is going to go down, and we come to agreements, we're going to give you the scripture of the day. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily ensnarls us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1. Remember, the scripture is the product of leadership. It is so involved for your life. It not only guides you, it leads you. It comforts you, it lifts you up, and it saves you. So that's why we played here. As always, a reminder, Test Everything 1521 comes out every Monday. Look for those shows. We're still, uh, we're actually just showing some of the old shows. We're throwing them in there while we gather uh, some new shows are in production. But you can always catch us every Monday on RaiderCopNation.com and there look up uh, Test Everything and you can see every show. Remember our shows last 90 days <clears throat> and then they disappear. Even though the message disappears, the Word of God lives forever. As always, when you want to get in contact with us, you can always look us up at RaiderCopNation.com. As a reminder, we have a co-host. They're right there around the corner. They're going to uh, jump in as of uh, September. So the vacation's over. They had a little summer break. Well-deserved, by the way. We've, we have uh, uh, some marriages going on, some promotions, some well-rested individuals, some... Uh, that have been uh, uplifting their businesses. So back to the grind, starting September, we're going to be featuring Kilo Sierra on 
episode 105 and 106. Don't have the exact dates in front of me. But uh, Hill is going to be uh, with us. We're always blessed to have him, by the way. And I'm also going to, before I talk about 105 and 106, remember we have some specials coming up in October and another one in December. And uh, I will talk about that too. Uh, let me give you the rundown for September, okay? Since this is the last show of the month of August. Uh, September 4th, we're doing um, the episode is Red Flag Laws with No Mental Health. So what's, so what's the point? 103 episode. Red Flag Laws with No Mental Health. So what's the point? And uh, we'll dive into that as Democrats and Republicans and everybody wants gun change laws and so forth. And uh, mental health somehow got swept under the rug. September 11th, of course, uh, we're going to talk about our heroes, victims, uh, one uh, one in the same. The victims and the heroes are one in the same. And we're going to be talking about the, with... Uh, about Detective Luis Alvarez, NYPD retired recently, died in one of his valiant efforts before his death. He lobbied Congress or testified in front of Congress to refund the survivors of 9-11. So we will be talking about that. That's episode 104. And then 105, we bring back our first superhero, which is Kilo Sierra, He's going to be talking to us about mass shootings, and we're going to be doing short stocking. Short stockings. I had to. I had to look at that twice. I said, "Wait a minute, is this a stock?" No, but it's not a stocking that women wear. It's called short stocking for home defense, and that is episode one hundred six. So we're going to start bringing in a lot of tactics. We're going to be talking about guns, guns, guns. Coming up, and uh, the guys are looking eager to to jump in too. We also are going to be doing two episodes, one in October, about uh, the business of prayer and how that has been politicalized, and how um, the government, in particular, with the excuse of prayer, have made. Um, I don't want to say a living because that's they've created a power base. That's what we'll say. So that that special episode is coming up in October and and uh, December. We're going to have the friends within, and that's going to lift up your eyes. It's going to really kind of uh, make you think twice about what in the hell's really going on with our government. So stay tuned to that. All right, just a fast little recap of what's going on. We talked about the Cuban Mafia in episode 100. And we discussed uh, the leader or the godfather, better known as a padrino, Jose Miguel Battle, a.k.a. Mike Battle, and how he became a young police officer in Cuba in the Providence of Oriente, as a young officer, not even barely a year on the job, he was transferred to Cuba because at that time, 
the president of Cuba, Batista, had reached out to Meyer Lansky, and they wanted Lansky to come in and control some of the hotel casinos because local Cuban gangsters were skimming and robbing and stealing money from tourists, and it was bad for tourism and for business. So they brought in Lansky. One of the things that Lansky recommended was change the cops. They're no good. Bring some cops out from out from other areas that don't know anybody. And Jose Miguel Battle was swiftly transferred from the province of Oriente to Havana, and he was quickly risen to the rank of a plain clothes detective, if I may, in Vice, in the Vice Squad, which basically patrolled the hotel, the casinos, looking for all kinds of vices like prostitution, uh, uh, alcohol without a license, and uh, illegal gambling. So it was right up his alley. They brought him there. He didn't know anything. He was wet behind the ears. He's quickly introduced to some people in uh, the underworld and through Cubans, of course. They first made contact with the owner of the Tropicana Hotel, and his name was Martin Fox. And they, of course, made the introduction to him to Meyer Lansky, which really didn't take too much to anybody, kept to himself a little bit of a sourpuss, and Santo Traficante, and a friendship emerged from there. Young vice cop Mike Battle was given certain envelopes, and he delivered the payoffs up to the chain of command, politicians, uh, his own police rank and file, all the way to the chief, and including the president of Cuba, Florencio Batista, at an astounding amount of money of $1.2 million a week. After several years of that, Mike Battle was severely connected to the Cuban underworld as a vice cop. But then came the impossible. Everybody thought that they would last for 100 years, but no. A bearded wonder came out of nowhere with his Soviet communist philosophies, even though he swears he never was a communist. And his name was Fidel Castro, and they took over, kicking out the mafia, kicking out the casino gambling, and so forth. And that put young Jose Miguel Battle on a ship headed towards New York with a visa, trying to figure out what the next move would be. Once he came to America, he got together with a lot of immigrants that were coming from Cuba. They were being recruited by the dozen by the CIA, which is recruiting them for the Battle of the Bay of Pigs. The training would commence so, uh, in Texas or areas of the United States and then transfer them to Guatemala for more advanced training. Six months later, they would be ready for a launching of the Bay of Pigs invasion on the 16th of December, uh, excuse me, the 16th of April of 1961. They were sent out. Failed effort, didn't work. 
Uh, air cover never came from John F. Kennedy because Kennedy didn't want uh, the United States messed up and all that because the original invasion plans came from President Eisenhower. So the Cubans felt that they were betrayed. The United States government quickly made friends with those Cubans that were sent to the Bay of Pigs by giving them long-standing government careers in areas such as the CIA, FBI, and in the military. Young Battle was a second lieutenant and a war hero in the Bay of Pigs, actually saved some people. And he did a little stint in the Army. But once he got out of that, he said, these people are full of BS, and I, I am going to make money. I'm going to resort back to what I know. And boy, did he. He makes, he reaches out through various connections to meet his friend, Santos Traficante, in uh, Tampa, Florida, and he would have the sit-down. Of course, Santos was uh, a part of episode number 100 in the Tampa Mafia. And as a result, we spoke about uh, how Santos's career and the Traficante family uh, organized in the Italian Mafia. The introductions were made. The decisions were done. Santos gave the blessing. He got paid 10%. The envelopes were fast and furious. And then the connection was made where we left off in episode 101. This is 102. I think I, I goofed and said this is episode 101. We actually, This is 102. I'm, I'm, I'm losing my count here because we're in the three digits, my friends. So we talked about the sit-down. We talked about that Santos Traficante had to really come up with a good tactic in order to introduce Mike Battle to the American underworld. So that was a briefing of where we left off. Let's start the circus for round two, episode 102, Cuban Mafia. Somewhere along the line, Santos Traficante makes the connection with one of the families. My guess, he he called the Genovese crime family. And he basically told them, I'm going to motion to the commission about a guy that is a friend of mine that can make you guys a whole lot of money in New York and New Jersey. Why the Genovese family? Because... One particular boss that they had, the underboss, which was uh, Jerry Catania, he had been the underboss under uh, Vito Genovese from 1957 to 1972. Now, there was a street bosses. There were three of them. 
But uh, Jerry was still the underboss. And, of course, he was ducking for cover and everything else, making sure he didn't get uh, indicted or anything, which he did in 1971 and went away for a couple of years. Once he came back, he retired. But why is he so important is because he controlled the rackets in Jersey also. So giving him the nod and the, the commission vote would have been a slam dunk. And, of course, we now also know uh, through indictments, through this book, the cooperation written by uh, English, we can uh, look at the fact that it was given to Fat Tony Solano of the Genovese crime family, which was uh, later on in his career the front boss of the Genovese crime family, but had been a very powerful captain in the Genovese crime family. Now, we break it down, and we have a lot to look at here, but uh, we we know that that commission meeting uh, must have happened somewhere in the mid-'60s, probably 65 or 66, and uh, from then on, the money started rolling. Uh, Miguel, Jose Miguel battle turned into Mike battle now, and, of course, he started out in the Union City, West New York area, Hudson County, slowly putting in bolita shops all around. Now, he had learned bolita in Cuba, and he learned it from uh, his time as a vice cop. He knew that you, you were a banker in bolita. You were only as good as one number away from disaster. If everybody voted on or or bet on the same number, you were done. And so he knew that he had to have some luck to go with this, and luck he had plenty of. He, through his connection with Fat Tony Solano, also moved, <coughs> excuse me, moved into the upper Manhattan side, what is regarded as Washington Heights in Wood, that area up there in Manhattan, and they started to plop up as many uh, bolita joints as they could, bringing in huge envelopes to Fat Tony and the Genovese crime family. Now, Fat Tony had been uh, a capo in the Genovese crime family probably somewhere in the area of 1932. Now, officially, government records noticed him as a capo in 1948, but actually believed that he was in the acting couple position since the 30s. He rose to supremacy in the organization as an earner, and earners make money. Originally, as a young youth in New York City, Tony Solano uh, was part of the 116th Street crew, and he grew into the mafia under Michael Trigger Mike Coppola which later disappeared in the 30s to avoid a murder indictment. And there's where it's believed that Tony Solano took over. Solano had, at the height of his power, over 200 men underneath him as a couple, not as the boss. Remember, he was the front boss of the Genovese crime family. In other words, he wasn't the original boss. He was put out there for the FBI to believe he was the boss, and that charade went on since 1969. And he didn't get nailed for it until 1985. So, as you could tell, the mafia really didn't know 
anything about him. He was bringing in a total of $400 million a year in the rackets. So Fat Tony was a good friend to have, and Michael Battle was going to use that friendship. He started his uh, Bolito operations in Union City, as we discussed, and he ran the operation from a jewelry shop that he owned and various townhouses or apartments in the West New York Union City area. So the monies of the Bolita operations that they had around New York City had to be transported over to New Jersey to be counted. So when in the height of the corporation or the Cuban Mafia's position in Bolita, they actually got corrupt cops to transport the money through the George Washington Bridge over to the Jersey side where Jersey cops would meet them on the other side to deliver the money to safe houses or safe apartments where this money or stash of money could be counted on an everyday basis. Miguel uh, Battle or Mike Battle was making millions shortly after. The money started pouring in like never seen before. Now, he had power with that money, which made him even more of a dangerous individual. So he had the Genovese crime family in the underworld. So if anybody wanted to muscle in on his operation, well, he had his own guys that did pretty good. He had a list of soldiers. And remember, a lot of them have military and police backgrounds from Cuba and the United States. So they can handle themselves pretty good. But if he really had to avoid going toe-to-toe, he could just drop the name, the Genovese crime family, or Fat Tony Salerno, and that would be the end of that. But he also had political clout. In the area of West New York, he controlled the West New York Police Department, the Union City uh, Police Department, Union City itself, the mayor, William V. Musto, a captain in the Union City Police Department by the name of Captain Frank Scarafile. And he was also the connection to the mafia. Remember that the mafia, especially in this area that I'm talking about here, the Genovese crime family uh, controlled a large portion of it. Not all of it, but a large portion of it. Of course, the Jersey mob through the Del Cavalcante family existed also. Um, he controlled uh, the chief of the Union City Police Department, a gentleman by the name of Chief Herman Bolt. And he was significant enough because uh, back in 1956, he conducted an arrest on Bergen Line Avenue and 26th Street in a bar at around 1.30 in the morning of an uproar as people started screaming and throwing things at each other, and he responded as the responding officer. The person he placed under arrest because he couldn't take him, he had the largest and biggest mouth, was a gentleman by the name of Fidel Castro. Believe it or not, the bearded wonder was arrested by the Union City Police Department in the year 1956 for causing a commotion in a local bar. Boy, we had him and we let him go. So much for bail. He grows his empire and in the area of Jersey, politically, 
to control judges, mayors, councilmen, people that sought political office in New Jersey would have to have a sit-down, a meeting, a face-to-face with a gentleman by the name of Rene Avila that owned a newspaper by the name of Advance. And that newspaper, which was pretty much a front, obviously they did news stories, but uh, the breadwinner was the Bolita operation that came with it. And uh, this gentleman gave you, after he had a meeting with Mike Battle himself, the nod whether you could run for office in some of these areas in New Jersey. It was something of interest that uh, uh, a guy that came from Cuba as a vice cop could run a major Bolita operation in, as of right now, what we're talking about, areas of Miami or South Florida, New York, New Jersey, and now he's corrupting politicians, mayors, police chiefs, controlling city governments, and judges, prosecutors. He's becoming more and more powerful. He comes up on the radar of the FBI in the 1960s, and they say, what's the story with this guy? Not really sure how to connect the dots. They wanted to pin an indictment on him, but they wanted to nickel and dime him by just giving him a, a collar, get a pinch, arrest him. So they called their friends over at the IRS, the Treasury Department. They threw the name out, Mike Battle, and they said, look him up. I'm sure he's in violation of his tax code, and we can start the case. But what happened was that the Treasury Department wrote a letter to the FBI and said, no go. There's no way in this world will we prosecute Mike Battle. He's a a veteran of the Bay of Pigs, a war hero at that, and he's anti-Castro. The FBI was bewildered and didn't understand too much, but they also knew that there was influences in the CIA that kind of told the FBI, once you go plane traffic, kid, there's nothing for you to see here. The operation continued successfully for many years as a result that the United States government was looking the other way. We talked about his war record and his disappointments with the Bay of Pigs. It was something during his criminal empire on bugging devices that we could hear him complaining constantly about how the United States government, in particular he would blame Kennedy, screwed everything up. He, as many Cubans, wanted to go back to a free Cuba so they can run the rackets there in their native language. The operation goes on, it flourishes very well in parts of New York, as we said, Manhattan. He, he went into the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens. The operation at one time or another was had as many as two to 300 Bolita operations. Now think about that for a second. A Bolita operation, let's say on the cheap, on the little, not too big, 
would probably make you about, eh, give or take 500 G's, let's say, a week. And uh, he had two to 300. So that tells you everything. There was a lot of associates that worked with Mike Battle, but they really weren't a part of his organization. They were other boliteros, and they knew each other from Cuba. But they reached out to Mike Battle because Mike Battle had the connections with the mafia. He had the political connections, and he had the muscle. So they quite, very quietly paid him a tax, and they were all very content. Now, not all of them paid the tax. Some uh, said, well, no, I don't really need you. I'm a bolitero from Cuba, and I know that the secret for being a bolitero and gambling is to have a low profile. And that is what makes you money. You see, a lot of people that would gamble in Bolita were actually normal citizens. Old men, old ladies, grandmas, uncles, cousins, kids. You know, you bet as cheap as 50 cents, a dollar, it didn't matter. And it was easy to bet. You kind of knew the guy you were betting with. You see him every day walking up and down the street. Or at least he was coming out of a cafeteria or cafeteria. Then you could bet with him. So it was not seen as a crime in the eyes of the community. It was seen as a vice. Bolita was very famous in Cuba. And it was also, believe it or not, famous in Sicily. Sicilians played a version of Polita from way, way, way back as well. Now, it's believed that Polita's original origins came from France, skipped over to Spain, and from Spain it ended up in Cuba. And, of course, it took off from there and landing in uh, Ybor City in Tampa and, and uh, the, the rest as we know. <clears throat> so... A lot of people didn't see it as a vice. So one of the cardinal rules of a bolitero is I don't want no crackheads anywhere near my operations. I don't want no crime. I don't want the people that are going to place bets to feel that this is a criminal enterprise and that people on the cops might be watching or people might get robbed on the way in or out. So their, their people made sure that their spots were cleaner than Mr. Clean. And as a result of that, a lot of boliteros that wanted to go independent, and they did, didn't really pay uh, Mike Battle a percentage. And he was good with that because uh, they could work together in other areas down the road because another lucrative operation was money laundering. And uh, that was a hook that he had that a lot of them did not have. And when you start making millions and millions of dollars and you don't know, you know, you're digging up parts of your backyard and putting money inside uh, walls in a home to hide it, uh, after a while you have to start making some money laundering operations. And they did that uh, very, very effectively. Now, to give you a little bit of an insight of the height of their power, when their operation was, an indictment came down, this is an 04, and I'll put the doc number in the federal case indictment paperwork on the show notes, you can see it. 
The people that were charged were Manny Marquez, which is also part of the Marquez brothers, Julio Chino Acuna, and Mike Battle Jr., not to be confused with Sr. This is his son. His son gets into the operation. Now his dad wanted him to be a lawyer, didn't want him to get up in these rackets, but the kid was attracted to an easy living, making a lot of money, and he became part of the operation. It's also believed that the name, the corporation, never emerged from Mike Battle Sr.'s lips. It came from Junior. Junior was the one that branded that name. So Junior, oh, Senior and Junior did not have a very good relationship, by the way. But it was his son. And uh, back in uh, 04, he was indicted. Now, the indictment said that the operations that they were lucrative in, the locations were U.S., Miami, New Jersey, New York, and New York City, Texas, the Caribbean, the Canary Islands, Europe, specifically or especially Spain, Central and South America, especially Peru. The case against Junior, nobody else, Junior, was a forfeit amount of $642 million that the government said the money that he made or the corporation made between 1979 and 1988 the government wanted $642 million forfeited. Altogether, with all the defendants in this case, there were some more, too. Let me add the rest of them. You also had Abraham Ritz, Juan Mojica, Humberto Davila. We'll talk about Davila and his uh, sinister, sinister behavior in a minute. Antonio Rodriguez. Luis Tanta, and Jose Alvart, Argelio Jimenez, and Gustavo Battle. That's right, Gus Battle, the brother of Mike Battle. There was a total of five brothers, by the way. Uh, one brother, of course, was killed. And, uh, and much of over a decade he spent trying to kill the guy that killed his brother. And that's how tripped, that's what really ended up doing this corporation in. The, the propensity to, for violence at a drop of a hat. It was a, outstanding and uh, amazing, and, and needless to say. The government also said that there was positions in the corporation, specifically three. Padrino, vice chairman, and consejero. Consejero being counselor. Padrino being godfather. There was crews or groups, but they were identified as divisiones or divisions. Now, the government says that this all started somewhere in the, in the frame of 1964. Must have been a slow, moderate operation. Sure, the government got a lot of this information from tattletales that later went into the Witness Protection Program. But there was a gentleman by the name of Ernesto Torres, and he's not the singer. He was the prod prodigal son of Mike Battle. Brought him over from Spain. And one of the reasons he brought him in, because uh, the, this, the young man had no fear of anything. 
And um, but he ends up being an Achilles heel to Mike Battle later in because this uh, individual, Neto Torres, started kidnapping boliteros and asking for money. Needless to say, his end result of Ernesto Torre was two shots in the back of the head, or better said, one in the back of the head and one between the eyes by Mike Battle. And the government says that uh, somewhere during 1985, we're kind of skipping along here, uh, there was a turf war. There was something called the two-block rule. Now, we're going to go back to the original commission vote. Whoever presented the vote from the five families, which most likely was the Genovese family, they later came up with the two-block rule. And that was you could not have another bolita operation within two blocks from the one that was there. There's other rules, too. Of course, you could not get into sports gambling, the horses, car games, stuff like that. That was for the Italian mafia. So this was strictly just for Bolita. And uh, the two-block rule was in effect from that early on and um, up until 1985 when somebody threw a flag and said, hold up one second. There's a violation of the two-block rule. Now, what had happened at that time was Mike Battle had moved to Miami. He was basking in millions, just watching the money coming in. He wasn't watching the storefront. And a couple of uh, boliteros under him started getting a little frisky. One of them opened up a a bolita operation. He didn't really like the location. And uh, it got raided by the cops. And once it got raided, he said, well, we'll just go down two blocks down that way. And they told him, well, you can't go down there because so-and-so's down there. He goes, who says? And the rest started a mob war. That's right. Between the Cuban mafia and the Italian mafia. And it started to get really, really bad. Lasting eight to nine months, there was over 40 bombings and car bombings in Hudson County, New Jersey, alone. The government also says that turf war created 70 murders. It was ugly. Now, the actual sit-down before the mob war started was held in Manhattan, somewhere in the area of 88th Street, and uh, in a restaurant. And as the Cubans were coming out of uh, the restaurant, A car drove by and shot one of them up, shot him in the arm, I believe it was. And Miguel, Mike Battle, gave the order, we're going to war with the Italians. The Cubans were not shy about going to war either. They were commonly uh, referred to as hot-headed, and they would blast their way in the middle of Central Park at 12 o'clock in the afternoon blasting away through visitors and tourists and moms with their kids at the playground in Central Park. And there they were, running and chasing after each other, blasting away in the middle of Central Park. They were known for being fearless when it came to battle. Get it? 
because of their background. So the Italian mafia had a lot on their hands. Now, what occurred was that one of their, one of the boliteros, Umberto Davila, decided to go into business with the Lucchese crime family. And the Lucchese crime family shook him down real good, and they said, no, 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 no. There's no 10% here, Sonny. You're going to pay 50%. He agreed just to get his name on the map. And then the two-block rule was a violation between two Cuban boliteros, one of them being with Davila and the other one being with the Batal group. Therefore, you had the you had the Genovese family and the Lucchese family trying to figure all this out. When tough Tony, fat Tony Salerno, I better said, got involved, he said, look, we're not violating anything. Everything's doing fine, but uh, you guys can't go around shooting each other. And uh, Battle didn't like those odds. Now, you got to remember, 1985, Fat Tony is on trial for the commission hearing. Last thing he freaking cares about is a bunch of boliteros angry at each other and what the Lucchese crime family wanted. So he kind of got pushed to the side, let the better man win. So although there was a lot of money to be made, that wasn't the priority of the Italian commission at the time, especially because of the commission case in 1985. We look now that they had a money laundering operation that was very, very lucrative. They um, had front organizational companies in Panama. They would transfer money over to Panama. That money would get sent over to Switzerland and Swiss accounts, and their offshore accounts and so forth. But one day, going through the airport, Battle Jr. and his mentor, which was a guy by the name of Julio Chino Acuna, which was also senior's bodyguard for many years, he took the kid under his arm, under his wings, to teach him the ropes. They're coming back from a flight, and there was a connected flight from. Uh, they wanted to leave out of Newark, or they had to get, they had to go to uh, JFK and swing down to Miami. So they drove over to JFK. Problem being, that was an international flight. In other words, that the plane is originating or going to a country outside the United States, which stops in the U.S. Therefore, it's subject to custom review or inspection. These two uh, gentlemen were carrying $500,000 in two briefcases. And uh, when they told them, well, you got in the briefcase, they looked funny. And they said, oh, poo-poo, this is an international flight we're on. So um, they immediately did what any bolitero would do with a lot of money. I don't know. That's not mine. Somebody just told me to bring it. I don't know what's in there. Mike Jr., ran over to the garbage can, ripped up some papers, threw it inside the trash can, and the custom official said, hey, what are you doing there? What, are you, what did you throw away? Dug in the trash can, pulled it out, 
and it uh, showed uh, they pieced it all together nice and slowly through the the crime lab, I guess. And uh, they basically said uh, these this is a note that's showing $1.2 million being transferred from one account to another account and the money that they're carrying and all this other stuff. So the government had the beginning of the case. That was almost the beginning of the end for Mike Battle. After the indictment of his son, he took off to Peru where he wanted to open up and actually started the operation of opening up a hotel casino. But uh, after so many months of living in Peru, the government in Peru said, "Ah, you can't stay here, bro. You're hot. You got to go back. And they went back, and he got indicted as well. Judge, judges were paid off. Miguel Battle had a case that he did time for, and he was looking after he got out and he was doing some probation, uh, parole, I think it was. He uh, was looking at a violation of that because he had they found him with a gun, I believe in, in Miami or something like that. And um, he was looking at some serious time. And uh, the case was brought up uh, through uh, an attorneys that they had, the corporation, and they bribed the judge. The judge was, na- was named Judge Seppi. And for those that were in law enforcement in Miami-Dade in the 80s and 90s, they'll know that Judge Seppi was uh, indicted by the FBI for corruption. And one of the cases that were noted was this one with Mike Battle. Battle was fearful that he could get 15 years, but in return for being such a good guy, such a good kid, and providing the judge with um, tickets to a Yankee game, he was... um, basically uh, put and right out right out to the courtroom. Have a great day. Thanks for coming, sir. Next case, and he was let go. The political reach was amazing. Today, we don't know much what's going on with the corporation. The government says it's finished. The government gives us the spanning years of 1965 to 2006 were the years of operation for the Cuban mafia. Folks, if you know anybody that is still doing Bolita today, that means they're paying somebody. And that somebody is probably the entity that the government says no longer exists. Does it exist like it did in its heyday? No, it doesn't. Neither does the Italian Mafia. It's no longer 1950 over there either. There is new reigning kings. There are new operations. They are more maybe sinister than they were in past. But they still exist. To know and to understand that the criminal enterprise in Cuba reached America and that there was a Cuban Mafia here is not so far-fetched because Cuban society produced these individuals and therefore how can we be surprised today that they actually existed or may still exist. Of course, Mike uh, Battle was lost his battle with life 
right after saying he was guilty of all charges in 06, um, he didn't want to fool around too much with a hearing. He just look, I'm guilty, and that's the end of it. He later died a year later, August 4th, 2007. He, his son was recently released from federal prison where he did, uh, he was sentenced to 15 years. He actually did less. Um, and he was ordered to pay restitution in the amount of $642 million. Obviously, with the amount of attention that he's had in his life, I doubt very serious he has anything to do with this organization as of today. The mentor to, to Junior, uh, which was uh, Julio Chino Acuna, got life in prison. The list goes from there, and I could bore you for another five or ten minutes with the list of names, the years of sentencing, and, and so forth. They're gone. Bottom line. But the Bolita operations still exist. Now today, strangely enough, that the Federal Bureau of Investigation announces, and the New York City Police Department does too, says that a lot of these operations that the Cubans had were later taken over by other criminal organizations, namely the Haitian Mafia, if you can believe it. This is, this is the way of the underworld. There's no way around it. One group goes down, another group lives. The Italian Mafia has existed for so long because they refuse to die. But it is a very tough business indeed. There's so much more. There is a movie coming out, the movie rights. The book deal was done with T.J. English. He wrote the book, The Corporation, over 600 pages. And the movie is coming out. Uh, sometime in the near future, they have the actors, the producers, and so forth, the studio, and uh, so it's coming your way. A lot of what I discuss you will see in that movie, and of course they'll have their own Hollywood spin to some some of this. I don't want to gla glamorize what we're talking about because that's not the intent. The intent is how a criminal organization as the Cuban Mafia, better known as the Corporation, existed under the nose of many, many Cubans in New York, New Jersey, and Miami. And many, a large, huge portion, a percentage of them, knew nothing of who these individuals are. A lot of the money that they laundered were created businesses that exist today and they actually laundered millions through these companies and these businesses these are but you might believe mom and pop stores i'm not going to mention their names but uh people frequent them every day in miami i could tell you that and the corporation filtered millions of dollars through them and they never knew that this secret society existed it has been my honor and my pleasure to be your host on Raider Cop Nation. As always, continue to pray for yourself because without you in the game, we have nothing. Pray for your family, 
pray for your community. Pray for the agency that serves you, the police agency. And most importantly, pray for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike. Until we meet again in episode 103. And guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet. Two, three, two, uh, 